Listeners, welcome to the 73rd episode of The Goods Film Podcast. We are in the third week of Yam, going Yam. That is Young Adults Adaptation Month. Uh, So every movie that we are watching this month is an adaptation of a young adult book, which is a well-known publishing term, typically novels aimed at teens ages 12 to 18 and we have one of the the founding fathers of of young adult literature here today uh maybe not founding fathers because it was written by a woman but that is the outsiders so this is a novel that was written in 1967 by susan hinton her publishing name is se hinton so this came out in 1967 it was the first book ever marketed as a young adult book so aimed at teens kind of invented a new publishing niche at least that's the way that i've seen it described i imagine that that narrative is a little bit oversimplified but that's kind of what i've seen this listed as is the very first young adult novel yeah that's what wikipedia said gotcha And she was 15 when she started writing this, 16 when she finished it, and I think it came out when she was 18. That's pretty out of control. That's insane. It's kind of like Read It and Weep. Not a lot like Read It and Weep, but a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it it would be like if the journal that she wrote in Read It and Weep was still being read in middle school literature curriculums 50 years later, you know? Yeah. Tom Cruise played Marco Vincent. I mean, I think 18-year-old Tom Cruise would have been better as Marco Vincent than the guy who was Marco Vincent. But... <laughs> better than Chad Broski? <laughs> Y'all can hear our coverage of uh, Read It and Weep in the previous episode. But no, now it's time to turn a new page, so Outsiders this week. One thing we like to do, and I'm going to keep it pretty brief this week, is have a topic of the week. So something related to our theme month, because after all, this is Young Adult Month. And so this was early history and milestones of young adult literature. And so what I was thinking was we could talk about what were really some of the formative and influential young adult books. And I have a short list of ones that are really influential. I'm a little more familiar with the last 20 or so years because that's obviously when I've been reading young adult books. But most people agree that The Outsiders is the first official young adult book. But even more kind of consensus is that the spiritual precursor, the one that kind of paved the way, is Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger from 1951. Have you read Catcher in the Rye, Brian? No, I have never gotten around to that one. Yeah, I actually only read it for the first time a couple of years ago. It feels ahead of its time. Or at least it feels fairly modern. It does some things that I think are ambitious for a young adult audience. Now, then again, this was written for an adult audience, even though it's the perspective of a teen and about teenage related things. It was written for adults. Catcher in the Rye was. But it's definitely sophisticated for something focused at young adults. It's kind of stream of consciousness Everything happens in one night and you're getting a very unreliable narrator. 
and he's like definitely impacted by trauma, but not directly talking about that trauma. It's pretty good. I can see why a lot of people don't like it because the main character is kind of an asshole, Holden Caulfield. But that's one I recommend. I don't know if that's ever been adapted. I'm sure it's been attempted at some point, but J.D. Salinger was famously reclusive, like intensely anti-war and impacted by his time in World War II. And I don't know if he ever signed on for like speaking in public, let alone licensing his book at all or anything like that. So I'd have to look up to see if it was ever adapted. That was going to be my next question was, did they ever do a movie? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd like to to look it up. Certainly th- a lot of books and movies in the young adult genre are kind of impacted by it. I mean, it's the what's your your phrase for something that happens all in one day? Crowded hour. Yeah, it's it's a crowded hour story. So, obviously you see that everywhere in young adult lit and and stories and stuff. Everything happening all at once is a microcosm for teens, everything happening all at once. So, a couple of other influential ones there were uh, a few that kind of pioneered what has come to be called the problem book or i think you also sometimes just call it coming of age i kind of use coming of age as a more broad term but if you hear something specifically described as a coming of age book it means a usually a sad book where someone is dealing with something very difficult a teen that is so a uh a YA novel and a couple of big ones for that is there was a 1971 book. I think it was published anonymously, although now I'm seeing that it's listed to an author, Beatrice Sparks, but it's called go ask Alice. And it's about a girl who gets a drug addiction. So, you know, these books where they're dealing with something dark and that is kind of amplifying the the drama that, the teens are going through as they're kind of discovering all this other stuff about their life. So go ask Alice was a big one. Um, the perks of being a wallflower, which came out in, I think the late nineties, uh, let's see, 1999. Yeah. Uh, written by Steven Chbosky, subsequently adapted by Steven Chbosky in a fairly successful adaptation, something like 2015 or something. And that's another problem novel slash coming of age story. The biggest hit in the YA universe outside of the kind of franchise novels like Twilight, Hunger Games, Harry Potter, the biggest hit of the past 20 years has been The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, which I adore. I think it's a masterpiece. Also adapted in John Green's one of my favorite writers. Um, That book has sold a trillion copies. And for a while, every single book that came out was just aping the cover If you ever see something with a light blue or like bright light color with kind of a almost handwritten looking font on the front, you know that it came out within five years of The Fault in Our Stars because everybody was trying to make a book that looked and felt like The Fault in Our Stars. So I think it would be interesting to go and look and see what all the big hits were and what the lineage was, like which things inspired which things. But those are kind of the ones that I've seen cited as the things that kind of defined an era of YA lit. And I'm sure there are more, like another huge one that's kind of borderline between middle grade and young adult is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, written by Judy Bloom, which was another right around the time of Go Ask Alice. 
another YA novel that pushed ahead the uh, sophistication and depth and darkness. That one's not particularly dark, but it is very honest growing up as a young woman. That's another one I read for the first time in the past 10 years or so. Wasn't exactly the target audience as like a 26-year-old man when I read it or whatever it was, but, you know. Any other touchstones in YA that you can think of, Brian, that we didn't talk about here? Well, you didn't mention The Hunger Games. That's right, yeah, The Hunger Games. That's true, because there's a whole dystopian was a huge fad as well in the past 15 years. Died down some. And of course, I mean, if you can even call Harry Potter young adult, most successful book series of all time. Twilight, another one of the most successful book series of all time. I think people tend to think more highly of Harry Potter and The Hunger Games than they do of Twilight. Kind of see it's become a punchline in terms of the quality of it. And obviously you've got the many adventures of Darren Shan <laughs> as begun in the novel Cirque du Freak. Yeah, that's right. Another one you can go listen for us. But let's talk about the book and the adaptation of the day. That is The Outsiders. This adaptation came out in 1983. So what did we say? Was it 1967? So it's about, uh, you know, decade and a half later. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So if you ever read anything about Francis Ford Coppola's career... He made four uncontested masterpieces in the 70s and then spent the 80s trying to recapture the magic in a whole bunch of different ways and bankrupted himself in the early 80s and then made a couple of pictures that were more about getting some money back. And this was one of those where he was just trying to make a successful film. Not to say he didn't put his all into it, but like the impetus to create this was at least somewhat financial and pragmatic. You know, he couldn't go all uh, Apocalypse Now on this one. He actually started his own studio early in his career, which he kind of scaled up as he became more and more successful. It's called Zoetrope Studios. It's got a couple other names, but it usually has Zoetrope in there. So after he had become a big-time director, he scaled up his, his Zoetrope Studios a little bit, and he made this musical that I have never seen. I've seen referenced, and in researching this, I read a little bit more about and now I really want to see. It's called One from the Heart. Have you seen One from the Heart, Brian? No, I haven't heard of this. I'm just going to read what Wikipedia says. One from the Heart is a 1982 American musical romantic drama film co-written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Frederick Forrest, Terry Gall, Raul Julia, a few others. Oh, including Harry Dean Stanton. The story is set entirely in Las Vegas, the film was a colossal critical and commercial flop. So that's the lead in on Wikipedia. But it just sounds like it was this real wacky, uh, aggressive musical that I'd like to see sometime. Yeah, it's intriguing. So the story of how Coppola came to make The Outsiders is that, again, one from the heart had just flopped and he was looking for another less experimental, less ambitious project. And he got a letter from a class of middle schoolers. I think it was middle schoolers, not elementary schoolers, basically saying, we're doing a school project on our favorite book and we picked The Outsiders. And part of the project is we were gonna write a letter to our favorite director asking, would you consider making this? And 
that's like the kind of thing that, you know, I can imagine being assigned, actually being assigned in a sixth grade English class. It's crazy that like it actually worked. So he saw it, he read the book. He's like, yeah, I can see that as a, a movie. It's very cinematic in the way that it's written. It would adapt pretty easily. Yeah, let's do that. And so he started making The Outsiders and he made it pretty quickly. Came out in 1983 and he actually had aggressive cuts from the producers that were funding it. They basically wanted him to get it down to an hour and a half when the initial cut had been two hours, pretty close to two hours. And so he did cut it down. He cut out a lot of stuff. And then in 2005 or so, his granddaughters were in middle school and they've read The Outsiders and they asked to see it. And they asked him, how come you didn't include so-and-so scenes? And he still had all the footage so he re-edited together a extended cut for his granddaughters, and he decided to make it into an official director's cut that I think is called the Complete Novel Edition. So the way that I watched The Outsiders is I first rented it on Amazon Prime to watch the theatrical edition, the theatrical release, 90 minutes. Then I bought the DVD with the Complete Novel Edition, and I watched both director's commentary and cast commentaries. So this is another three-timer for me. You, you know, Dan likes to go above and beyond. What I did was I looked it up on Amazon, on my Roku box. Actually, I think it was my Amazon Fire Stick. And it popped up. The entry said the complete novel, and it listed a running time of two hours. And then I actually hit play on it, and it was the standard cut that was 90 minutes long. So strange that the listing said something other than what I got. But I believe I watched the shorter theatrical cut. Gotcha. Do you remember when the movie opened? Did it start with a bunch of Soches beating, beating up Pony Boy? I think there was some kind of narration or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's he's like Pony Boy is writing something. He's at his desk and he, there's like internal monologue. Right. Yeah. And then it goes pretty quickly straight to the drive-in theater. The movie theater, yeah. Yeah, so most of the stuff cut in the movie came in the opening and the ending. And then there are also a few scenes throughout the film. But why don't we go ahead and, and dive into it, and I can kind of pepper in a couple of the things I learned as I went. The, the kind of other big difference between the theatrical cut and the complete novel edition is... The theatrical cut is scored in almost entirely orchestrally. There's a couple of diegetic rock numbers, but basically everything has a kind of traditional orchestral film score that was composed by Carmine Coppola, who is the father of Francis Ford Coppola. And I think that it is not a very good score. I really thought it was a little tacky and uh, pulling at the heartstrings more than the content even needed because it's already pretty sentimental and just kind of overbearing. But in the complete novel edition, Coppola in the director's commentary said, agreed with that. He said, yeah, I ended up not liking the way the score panned out, but my own dad, like I didn't want to dump him from the film, but he's dead now. And so he can't hold it against me. So I'm going to edit out the orchestral score and add in a rock based score. So he basically 
added in a whole bunch of rock and roll numbers, including a bunch of instrumental surf rock songs. And I don't even know if it's all that much better. Some of the scenes are, but like some of the choices are distracting in their own right when it's like surf rock going as there's a rumble or like somebody stabbing someone else or something. So I don't know. I, I feel like they never got never got the music quite right in this, which is a little bit of a disappointment because uh, it's it's a ripe era for great rock and roll. But be ready to uh, to talk Outsiders 1983. Yeah, let's check it out. So this movie stars a whole bunch of names, but the main character is Pony Boy Curtis, played by C. Thomas Howell. And this takes place in the 50s. I'm not sure exactly what uh, year. Oh, well, actually, we know exactly the year because they go to a drive-in right at the start and what movie are they showing but beach blanket bingo yeah meaning that this is 1965 that's okay so does it actually take place in 19 for some reason i thought it was the 50s now i'm gonna look this up but you're right wikipedia says 1965 but yeah it looks earlier than that it seems broadly like it's earlier than that but i mean we said the same thing about american graffiti that it you think of it as being a 50s story, but really it's the early 60s. Yeah, I guess you're right, yeah. Yep, here you go, in 1965, you nailed it. I don't know why I thought it was the 50s this whole time. I guess I just think of like the greased back hair thing being a 50s thing. And you're right, it's got that same late mid-century feel where it hasn't quite, the, the cultural revolution hasn't quite hit. You, you never see a hippie. Um, and it takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the movie was actually shot on location in Tulsa. UHF was also shot in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Really? <laughs> yeah. Very different film. Apparently, Coppola really liked it. His next movie, I think it was his very next movie, was called Rumblefish, which is his great name. And he, he's like, yeah, I like Tulsa. I'm just going to shoot another movie here. So, Do you know why UHF was shot in Tulsa? I'm not sure. Maybe they just have good film credits. You know, you can go in and film yeah. for not too much money. Maybe. They'll let you turn a strip mall into Spatula City. <laughs> but Pony Boy is a high schooler. I think he's a freshman. And he lives he lives with his two older brothers, Soda Pop, played by Rob Lowe. And Derry is his like twenty ish year old brother played by patrick swayze so we got names just right out the gate here lots of you said this last week i think those are some names and that's what i kept thinking lots of names here just people we've heard of right it's an embarrassment of riches including people who are like barely in the movie they're just like standing around in the background it's like wait wait a minute is that tom cruise just standing there in like three scenes <laughs> so pony boy soda pop and dairy are all, I guess, I don't know if you're an orphan, if it's just, or are they collectively orphans if they don't have parents? I don't know how you'd phrase this, but their parents died in an accident. So Derry is the breadwinner. And they're all part of this greaser gang, this greaser group, which are all these poor kids who have rough home lives, kind of all bonding together. Now, I, I started to mention this a couple minutes ago. The novel cut gives us like a whole 12 minute intro where first we see Pony Boy walking out of a theater 
and giving this little narration about when I walked out of the theater, I only had two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. So I, I don't think that line was in the theatrical cut, but Brian, did you read the novel this week? I did not. Did you track it down? I did. Yeah. So I, I reread it. I had read it back in seventh grade. This was my first time reading it since seventh grade. Uh, not astonished that a 16-year-old wrote it. I mean, it's well-written, but it's very on the nose with just about everything. But I will say that calling the extended cut the complete novel edition was accurate. It's one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen of a book. I mean, like, honestly, if you had given me the book after seeing the movie, I would have believed you if you had said it had gone the other way around and this was just a novelization of the, the movie. Uh, oh, wow. And... One thing that I think is kind of clever, I don't know how much meaning it actually brings, but it's at least clever, is there's a pseudo framing story where we get a little bit more kind of like commentary and internal monologue from from Pony Boy. And then towards the end of the movie, I'm going to go ahead and spoil, I don't know if you can even call it a twist, uh, that happens at the very end of the movie as well as the very end of the novel. We learn that he's can write an essay to get some extra credit and his essay starts with when I walked out of the movie theater, I only had two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home suggesting that like everything that we had just witnessed was him reflecting upon it for the purpose of the essay. It's kind of got like a circular structure to it. It's kind of interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know what was up with the writing. The version that I watched, it didn't really explain. It just started and ended with him writing the the thing. Yeah, yeah. Kind of confusing or doesn't really have much meaning if you don't know exactly why that's there. So, yeah. Yeah, so these greasers. I, I liked in the extended cut, we get this sequence where we get to see a little bit more of them because they're pretty absent in the theatrical cut. Some of them are, at least. So we have Matt Dillon. He plays Dallas, a.k.a. Dally. He's probably about 20. I don't know. He's a much older teen, if not quite 20, who recently spent time in juvie. And he's like the baddest of the greasers, the one who always gets in trouble. You know, the one you can go to when things get real tough and he'll be there with a switchblade to, to make it right, you know. So last time when you mentioned that Matt Dillon was prominent in this movie... I had never heard that name before. I thought, did he mean Matt Damon? <laughs> but no. So I don't think I've seen another movie with this guy. But for what it's worth, I have an uncle who, when he was younger, looked like exactly like this dude. Does, doesn't add much to our discussion. But trust me that uh, my uncle Tom, like his wedding picture from the 80s, he like looks exactly like this guy. Wow. I'm kind of surprised you've never seen uh, a Matt Dillon movie. I guess you haven't seen There's Something About Mary? No. That would probably have been the most prominent one. He's But he's done a bunch of like really acclaimed movies, too. He did like a weird serial killer movie by Lars von Trier in 2018 called The House That Jack Built. I know you don't necessarily keep up with all of the latest horror movies, but um, that's one that got him a lot of buzz a few years ago. And then in the crash the 2004 one the one that won the best picture and is like super anti-racism did you ever see that one what was the title of it crash oh no i did not see that okay. one okay um sure you're not talking about 
Bob Dylan? <laughs> no. He's in that one too, but um and I've seen him in a couple other things. But another is Ralph Macchio, the karate kid. Also in My Cousin Vinny, one that uh, Brian and I are quite fond of. He plays Johnny, who is Pony Boy's best friend. He's kind of a troubled kid who has abusive and neglectful parents. He's kind of got a slightly higher pitched voice and he's kind of small, so he seems much younger, but he was actually one of the oldest among these boys here. Only uh, Patrick Swayze was older than him. Uh, have you seen Ralph Macchio in much? Yeah, I've heard Ralph Macchio. I mean, I, I didn't hear him say it, but... Is it Macchio? I don't know. I That's how I've heard it pronounced. Uh, but yeah, he's the Karate Kid. So I have seen that. Uh, my Cousin Vinny, obviously. And I feel like there's one or two other things, but uh, definitely a face I recognized. Okay, I'm looking it up right now. I just saw one place that listed as Macchio. I'm going to look at another one. Okay, I just saw two places listed as Macchio and not Macchio. But it uh, could, could be both or it could be that the sources I hit were wrong. That's not what Wikipedia says. Really? Okay, hold on. Wikipedia says Macchio. It's got the curly sh sound in the phonetic spelling. Well, now I got to see this. Let's see. Ma-a-t-sh-yo. Macchio. Macchio. Maybe it's like an Italian thing. Macchio. 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 No, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's got the T in there. It, this phonetic spelling they got in Machi- here. Macchio. Okay. Fine. We'll do it your way. Macchio. Ralph Macchio. So, sorry, I kind of, I lost my train of thought when you corrected my pronunciation. What What have you seen him in? <laughs> the Karate Kid and My Cousin Vinny. He's really good in this movie. I'm surprised. Like, I if you had just shown me this movie and I didn't know what any of the other kids did, I would have gotten, like, reverse order for how famous they ended up being the rest of their careers. That's a good point. Yeah, the ones who are, like, most recognizable aren't necessarily the most prominent in the movie. I mean, you would never know that Emilio Estevez would go on to be the star of blockbuster hit The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> I wonder where you're going with that. Emilio, but yeah, Emilio Estevez plays two bit. He's another greaser in the book. He's described as a kleptomaniac. I don't think we really see that is he always has a Mickey mouse shirt in the movie. That's not something that comes from the book, but he's just, he kind of hangs around and doesn't have much to do, even though obviously he's a great actor. And then Tom Cruise is there. Who knows why Tom Cruise is there? I don't know, but this was his, one of his last roles before he really broke out in Risky Business. When did Risky Business? 1983. Yeah. So it was the same year when he kind of broke out. So here he's like a slightly psychotic dude hanging around and you get a little more of him being hyper intense Tom Cruise in the extended cut. There's this thing where he like does a flip off of a car. And one thing I don't know if you caught Brian is later in this movie when there's a fight Tom Cruise went to a dentist to have a chipped tooth that he had had corrected, rechipped like intentionally so that it could make it look like during the fight, he actually chipped his tooth. Oh, wow. And then the rest of the movie, you see his mouth like two or three times and he has a chipped front tooth. So going like method. Yeah, that's commitment. 
I would just think you'd stick a raisin to your tooth or something. The rivals to this group of greasers are the Soches. So when I read it in seventh grade, I thought it was the Socks because it's spelled S-O-C-S, but it's short for socials, I guess. And it's definitely pronounced Soches in the, the movie. Right. So these are basically the preps is, I think, the word that we would use today. But I had heard this term from my mom. She went to high school in Petaluma, California in the early 70s. And apparently those were the cliques in her day, the greasers and the socias. So I had heard about this dichotomy prior to ever seeing the movie or reading the book. Fun fact, though, Petaluma is where American Graffiti was shot. Okay, yeah, yeah. I I think you mentioned that, yeah. And it was right around the time, right? You could, like, imagine, yeah. Right, yeah, 70s. And in the extended cut, we see the Soches right near the beginning. They kind of jump Pony Boy, and they stab him. Like, they, they don't really stab him, but they, like, bring the knife right up to his neck as if they would, like, stab him real bad, and they get a little bit of blood. And then for the rest of the movie, you see he's got a little scab under his chin, but you don't know why he has that if you just watch the theatrical cut. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but he's got like this big, obvious scab under his his chin for most of the movie. But as you mentioned, things really kick off at the drive-in theater, and that's basically right where the theatrical cut starts. And yeah, Beach Blanket Bingo, go listen to our beach party coverage. This is the one that's got Buster Keaton in it. And I think it was probably an intentional homage to show Buster Keaton... All the old great directors like Coppola love Buster Keaton. But we see him chasing around a, a woman in the scene at the drive-thru. I feel like I would have loved drive-thru theaters. I feel like I I was born in the wrong era. I mean, I know they still exist, but they're kind of like a novelty now, you know? Have you ever been to one? Actually, I've never gone to see a movie at one. Maybe we should set that up. I did one time, and oh man, this is like a really bizarre connection. I saw... Karate Kid, and the one time I went to a drive-in theater. But I saw the new one, not the one with Ralph Macchio. Oh, okay. And this seems like kind of an unusual one. I mean, I've never actually been to one, so what do I know? But this theater has both places for the cars to watch the movie, but then it's also got, like, bleacher seats. Yeah, I was confused by that, too, at first. So the way that I saw it when I went is they, they had a dedicated radio station so you just tune to the radio station and it played from your car speakers so there was no like speaker system blaring it but that wouldn't work i mean i guess you could have like some speakers playing it also i don't know how they did it in the olden days if they just like had speakers blaring or what i've seen that you would like get a little speaker that hung on the door of your car Mm. it's like you take it to your car and hang it there Okay, yeah, yeah. And and um they might have been on like a pole with a like a curly Q cord, like an old telephone cord. Interesting, yeah. I think I've seen it like that. So the three who go to this movie I think we end up seeing a couple more, but the three who are kinda of together are Pony Boy, that is our main character, Johnny, that's Ralph Macchio, and Dally, Matt Dillon, kind of the bad boy. And they all sneak in. They like go under a fence to 
to get into the theater. And they immediately find some Soch girls and uh, Dally just starts really aggressively hitting on one named Cherry, played by Diane Lane. I was not familiar with Diane Lane prior to this movie. Had you seen her in stuff before? No, I was trying to think if I had seen her before, but I can't recall a film that I saw her in. So I looked her up at some of her other movies. I think if I had been born like 10 years earlier, she would be like one of my favorite actresses because she appeared in a whole bunch of stuff in like the late 80s, up to like the late 80s, and was always like the picturesque beauty, you know. But this, I think, is the first time I've actually seen her in a picture before. So after Dally kind of hits on the girls, uh, gets told off by Johnny, the Sosha's uh, Cherry and her friend basically invite Johnny and Pony Boy to sit with them and hang with them for a bit. And we see some chemistry between Pony Boy and Cherry. It's like a across the tracks romance. And I guess it's the same variation we always see with the poor guy and the rich girl. It ends up getting not all that much play throughout the film, but in my memory, this this romance was like a really prominent thing in the story. But it's really you don't see too much of Cherry, the character. She's in like three scenes or something. Well, again, I haven't read the book. Something that you can do in a book that you can't do in a movie is get the character's thoughts. And so, like, a lot of this movie, at least, he's sitting alone in, like, an abandoned barn. So, if I was sitting alone in an abandoned barn, I might be thinking about Cherry, is what I'm saying. <laughs> if you yeah. get, get, got nothing but time on your hands for a week, you know, maybe maybe it fills a few more pages in the book than, than what we see. Yeah. And the book does a kind of hand-wavy... We spent the whole night talking and I felt I could be honest with her whenever we were talking. Whereas in the book, we just get two scenes. They're at the theater and then all of a sudden it's after the movie and they're still standing around chatting when who should come up but the drunk D-bag boyfriend. So this drunk D-bag boyfriend, he's got a generic name. What is his? Bob Sheldon. So Bob, I guess, played by someone named Life Garrett. L-E-I-F Garrett. I would have guessed Leaf, but his name was mentioned in both the cast commentary and the director's commentary, and they said Life both times. But he drives this blue Mustang, and this blue Mustang, Coppola does a great job of making it seem really menacing. It's kind of like always hovering around like a shark, like it's this portender of doom. It made me think of your concept of a gonculator, it's definitely not a gonculator because it doesn't have the imposing physical, huge crushing everything in its path, but just this vehicle that whenever it's on screen is a, a threat to things around it that I felt some gonculator spirit in it. Right. It's not quite big enough, but I can see what you mean. There's like a scene coming up where it rolls in and it's the middle of the night and nothing else is going on. And so you know that it's up to no good. Yeah. So later that night, after they have all parted ways, uh, Johnny, let's see, Pony Boy walks Johnny home, and Johnny's parents are drunk and fighting again. So Johnny and Pony Boy kind of wander off, and they head to this park where they doze off. And when they wake up, 
Pony Boy has to hurry home because he was past his curfew. His brother, Derry, gets really mad at him and, like, smacks him and, and runs off. The one thing I got to say, and this... It, Another thing that was much more prominent in the book is Rob Lowe is the brother Soda Pop. So you get a lot more of him in the the extended cut, but he's really not that big of a factor in the movie, at least the theatrical cut. And even in the extended cut, he gets some play. But in the book, everything that Ponyboy is doing, he's thinking about Soda Pop and comparing himself to Soda Pop and wondering about Soda Pop, like very much someone latching onto his big brother. So... That's another thing I remember from when I read it in seventh grade is like Soda Pop was just this great, memorable character, but then he's barely in the movie. That's interesting. Yeah, because all we really see is like uh, when Pony Boy is talking to Cherry, he's talking about the different members of his family, and he essentially just says how great Soda Pop is. He's like, oh, Soda Pop's my best buddy. I love Soda Pop. And then we finally meet him and we don't love him as much as he loves him. It's, it's just, we just don't get very much to get a sense of his personality beyond what we've been told. Yeah. I mean, it's Rob Lowe and he's a, he's a darling and charming young man. He gets to be shirtless a couple times. And so, you know, we don't dislike him, but we don't, we don't get the same pull that uh pony boy feels. I agree. I don't know if you've ever seen the show The Orville. No. Are you familiar? It's a Seth MacFarlane series that's kind of a takeoff of Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. But there's an episode that I think is the best episode that they've done, uh, but it has Rob Lowe as an alien who comes aboard the spaceship, and he's constantly emitting this pheromone that makes everyone that he meets fall in love with him. That's pretty funny. So just all the characters are like trying to advance their own romance with Rob Lowe, <laughs> men and women. Like they're like undercutting each other so that they can each spend more time than the others with Rob Lowe. That's pretty funny. Cause I guess he often does play a heartthrob in some of his earlier roles. Maybe it's a play on that. Mm -hmm. But after this blow up with Derry, a pony boy runs out again with Johnny. So now, Kind of in short succession, we have a repeated beat of, the, of Johnny and Ponyboy running away from something bad happening at home, but just kind of a mirror of each other. And then kind of like dozing off in a public space at night, except the second time things go even worse because who should pop up but the, the drunk Soches once more. They come and, oh, they remember that, hey, those greasers were... Darren to talk to Cherry earlier. They should be keeping to themselves and they're all drunk and they immediately jump Johnny and Pony Boy and start basically almost drowning. It's one of those things where you don't know if he would have gone so far as to actually drown Pony Boy, but he's getting really close to that. It's like worse than waterboarding that we're seeing. And we see basically Pony Boy on the verge of passing out only for a splatter of dark red to go across the uh, the screen, I guess, like a, a blur of red, this vision. Yeah, like like he's under the water and then there's like red in the water. And Pony Boy comes to and Cherry's 
drunk D-bag boyfriend Bob has been stabbed dead by Johnny. Johnny, in somewhat of a self-defense mechanism, stabbed him. But there's also this baggage with Johnny. We see him, his face is always bruised and battered. And some of it's because his parents are abusive. But we know that, and I can't remember how much this is addressed in the theatrical cut, but we definitely know in the extended cut as well as the book that he had a really bad beating with the Soches not too long ago. And this dude specifically, right? Because it keeps showing close-ups of his hands. They they say one of the greasers mentions that the dude that punched him had a ring, and that's why he has a scar on his face. And then we keep getting close-ups on Bob's hands showing the rings that he's got. So, like, this is the dude. That's right, yeah. And so it's kind of all these things blended together, like this horrible, traumatic life that Johnny lives in general the specific twinge of revenge, as well as seeing his best buddy being borderline drowned, possibly actually drowned by him, stabs him and kills him. And what do you do when you've just committed some horrible crime? Well, you turn to someone who's been in the clink. You turn to the person who knows what to do when you're living a life of crime. And in this case, it's Dally, Dallas. Matt Dillon. And so they, we get some cool, impressive visuals. In general, I'd say this movie actually looks quite good. Like you can tell Coppola is an extremely skilled director and like knows how to use iconography and colors and images and stuff really strongly. I really like the blood gradually going through this fountain thing where Pony Boy was almost drowned, just like a symbol of the gloom overtaking Johnny and Pony Boy as they realize the gravity of what they've done as this blood spreads through this fountain. Some cool stuff. But they do they do go find Dallas and Dally says, here's what you gotta do. You gotta go <laughs> He has really specific prepared instructions. You gotta go find this abandoned church, hop on a train, go just out of town, find this abandoned church. There's going to be food stashed there. It's like he was ready for something exactly like this to happen, probably thinking he himself would do it. Right. Like he's set all this stuff up. He's got his go bag and, and all that stuff. And Dally gives them $50 and tells them to go. And they do. So they hop on a train, go out into the boonies, and thus we hit kind of the middle portion of the film. And it's it's set up that this place is like somewhere that nobody ever goes and that just Dally knows about. And it like hasn't been used in years and years. Yeah. Just keep that in <laughs> mind. That's right. Yeah. And so they they manage to get there. They They find the church. It is all super abandoned. There's lots of shots of rats and mice and broken glass and decaying boards and stuff. But it's a church. I feel as if Coppola was like tapping into some just American iconography here. Just something real fundamental to the American experience of like finding refuge in a church, but also having it be like a trap and a, a decaying thing that can't 
really solve their problems. Um, I don't know. I feel like there was it was operating on a somewhat symbolic and elemental level, even beyond this story where it kind of worked here. But now that this is this like kind of the middle half of the film, I would say, is everything from that murder up until well, we'll get to it. But this time when they're kind of at this church, um, just experiencing this weird separation from their life and like reflecting on things. And it's kind of like got a very strong spiritual undercurrent to it, not just because they're at a church as all this is going on. I thought this was kind of the most, the, the strongest portion of the film where the, the stuff that kind of went beyond basic teenage melodrama and kind of melded into something was like operating at a, a more symbolic and higher level, like these kind of forces battling each other. Yeah. This felt like the crux of the whole thing. This act, it's kind of like uh stand by me. It's like they leave the world that they had known behind. And now they're in this kind of liminal space where they're out camping in the woods and hiking along the train tracks. But here in this case, it's they're camped out at this abandoned church. Right. I've actually never seen stand by me. I think that's one I'd like. Oh yeah. You got to watch that one. Yeah. One of the things that they're doing here is reading a copy of Gone with the Wind that they got. I guess they they picked up a paperback somewhere. Of course, it's a long book. So however long they got to lie low, they'll have enough book to get through. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like, I don't know if homoeroticism is the right word, but there's like a closeness between these two guys that seems like maybe not quite a hundred percent platonic yeah i'm glad you mentioned that i wanted to i didn't know where the right moment was to talk about this i agree and i think it's important really i i really think it's important to the story and i think to describe it as they are in love with each other is an inappropriate simplification of the situation just think about it there are these teenage boys who have lived just an absolutely shitty life parents either dead or abusive barely getting by they're completely lacking in intimacy and when you're a teen the notion of intimacy of being really close to someone and feeling that kind of uh, connection personal close physical space you can say anything be your true self that your teenage years goes from goes into being a romantic thing and a sexual thing and i think the film does a good job of balancing that of showing that like these are people desperately in need of a more profound connection in life and it triggers us something deeper than a normal friendship it's like Again, I don't want to just say that they're in gay love with each other or whatever, because it's not that at all. But there is something charged about this time, particularly when they're apart from the world and connecting and like for the first time are like have a stable supply of food and nothing they need to do except just kind of bond with each other. It's pretty powerful. I mean, I I think it, it really is a 
deeply felt and well depicted connection that they have together. I agree. So you mentioned that they read Gone with the Wind. And one thing I can't remember if I mentioned when we were talking about the movie earlier, uh, kind of at the when we were giving an overview, is that Coppola envisioned this as a, quote, teenaged Gone with the Wind in the sense of like being this large melodramatic epic in a sort of rural pastoral American life, but obviously very different narrative and social forces. That's such a weird thing to say. It's like comparing, uh, what was the movie we were talking about not too long ago that he kept making like grand cinematic illusions. Oh, Snow Day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. When he was saying Snow Day, oh, well, here I wanted it to be like Citizen Kane. Here I wanted it to be like The Wizard of Oz. Uh, now, this is like, you know, The Outsiders is a bigger deal historically, cinematically than Snow Day, if I can say that, if that's not too controversial. No, go for it. That's fine. But, I mean, even even then, it's like there's not a war going on. There's no, like, huge sprawling scenes of invasion and and stuff i don't know i i don't see the parallels other than it's like a southern setting well i think the things that are connected are one he was definitely trying to be melodramatic with the score and some of these like really especially right here these just achingly beautiful sunset shots full color I think comparison to some of the beautiful shots in Gone with the Wind. I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. so Okay, I can see that. I mean, there are sunsets, but Gone with the Wind is also four hours long, and this is a brisk 90 minutes, at least the cut I watched. <laughs> yeah, I guess he, he just saw some inspiration there, but no, I agree. It is a little bit of a silly comparison. Definitely not the same movie. I don't know, but you got like the North versus the South, the, the Greasers versus the Socias. Maybe not quite the same civil war that as far as the history books are concerned maybe not no that's that's funny one bit i like here is uh and this is maybe peak two boys being soft and intimate with each other is they're standing outside looking at a sunset and johnny this is ralph macchio macchio says it's like the mist is what's pretty you know all gold and silver and Pony boy says, mm-hmm, nothing gold can stay. And then he recites the, the famous Robert Frost poem. Let's see if I can get it from memory. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. So leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn becomes the day, nothing gold can stay. I think I might have missed one stanza in there. But this iconic Robert Frost poem. I actually don't think I'd heard this before this movie. Really? Yeah, it's a pretty good poem. Yeah, I like it. However many stanzas you get, you get the gist that it's youth and beauty are fleeting. Yeah. So when I was reading the book, it comes up and I was like, oh, yeah, very obviously this is like about innocence and how you don't know what innocence is until innocence is gone. And that's what the gold is here. And that's exactly what's happening to Pony Boy and Johnny here. And then there's like a whole page of text in 
towards the end of the book, well, it was like that poem, you know? And I realized that it was kind of about us, how we had this whole thing where we were young and we were gold. And I was like, okay, I guess this was written with seventh graders in mind. That's fine. You can be a little bit on the nose there, but no, you're, you're right. It's, uh, it's definitely heavily intertwined with the, the themes of the story. Well, one one example maybe of how you said you can tell it was written by a 16 year old yeah for sure and i know that one little snippet really well because i think i sent this to you brian there was a early pop punk group named newfound glory or at the time that they released the song i'm going to talk about they were called a newfound glory but they dropped the uh because it was not conducive to good internet searches and categorization right like the facebook right their first album was like an independently made album called nothing gold can stay where a bunch of the songs opened with snippets from mostly 80s movies i think there was a couple from the outsiders the most famous song on that album is called hit or miss and it begins with that little exchange between johnny and pony boy the needle on my record player has been wearing thin. You should go look up that song if you've never heard it before. What's the name of the group? A Newfound Glory, or perhaps just Newfound Glory. Oh, right. And the song is Hit or Miss. But it gets confusing because if you just look for that, they subsequently re-recorded it once they got a big record deal. So you need to like search for the that and then also add nothing gold can stay to make sure you get the correct version of it um, but eventually this phase must end and indeed dally shows up and dally who had obviously given them the info on this church tells them what's going on basically cherry is willing to testify that that the socias were super drunk and belligerent and so this was an act of self-defense I don't know if we're to think that she's in the car at this point or what, like how would she know that it was self-defense, but she's willing to testify to it anyways. Which kind of notable that like the guy who died was her boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is a little implausible to me, but you know, at this point we're seeing things from the pony boy perspective and Cherry is doing what we hope Cherry would do, which is, be empathetic to the greaser plight. Right. I mean, from what we got to see, it seems like self-defense is plausible, at least. Mm-hmm. So after Dally and Johnny and Ponyboy have this conversation, Johnny's like, well, maybe I'll turn myself in. And Dally's like, no, man, we got to be on the run. And it's not clear what's going to happen, but they go back to the church. And all of a sudden, the church is on fire and there's kids there. It's like packed with kids and there's a whole group of other kids standing outside yelling. And there's like two adult chaperones who, as everyone is running around in chaos, just kind of say, oh, we brought these kids here on a field trip. Why? <laughs> who the hell are these kids and where did they come from and why did they come here? Why is the abandoned church no one knows about where suddenly the field trip is going to yeah where is the school that they're coming from also it's like a very racially diverse class here in 1960s oklahoma i don't know there's like it's a mix of of both black and white children both of the adults are white 
So, I, I don't know. I have so many questions about this group of children that is now being consumed in the inferno. Yeah. I mean, it narratively makes no sense. And symbolically, it is like excessively on the nose. It's like literal children burning down as, again, the Johnny and Pony Boy's innocence is being destroyed over the course of a couple of weeks. But I agree. As a narrative, I... The the book didn't really even add much. It was just like, well, we got there and it was on fire. Okay, that was my biggest question if you read the book was, is there context for this? Not really. And did you say that like they just went to like get lunch and then they come back and this is happening? So I reread the book really quickly and I did not catch anything more than that. I was just like they were talking and then they were back at the church and then the church was on fire. So I, I think, yeah, I think that's all it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what it is in the movie. And what even started the fire? Who was doing anything that could start a fire? Well, they're smoking all the time, so they do blame it on themselves. Oh, okay. I don't know if that gets mentioned in the movie or not, but in the book, that's definitely there, where they think they caused it because they've been smoking this whole time. Okay, no, I I guess I do recall that, but yeah, I don't know. Then, like, why did they go in if it had already started? very bizarre it is almost like a dream or something but for it to be such a pivotal thing that's going to affect everything that happens afterwards very strange to me yeah i agree and i think it works best if you think about it this whole sequence of them being stranded at this church is operating on a very symbolic level that's the level at which it works it, it if you try to parse it narratively it doesn't stand up to all that much scrutiny yeah, because like it had been emphasized how out of the way this is and abandoned and how no one ever goes there, etc. But indeed, when they see the fire in the movie, I didn't catch this in the book and it probably was there and I just skimmed over it. But in the movie, there is the thought that they want to go recover the book. Oh, it's in there. The book's in there. But they go in and they end up saving a bunch of the kids that are there. So they like help him escape out of the windows. Specifically, Pony Boy and Johnny go in, and Dally ends up following them, presumably to save them, not the kids. They're like, "Come on, you got to get out of here!" But all three of them are in there, and they get all of the kids out, and then Pony Boy gets out, and then the whole church just collapses right onto Dally and Johnny. The building falls right on them, and so you know. I, I, when I watched this movie the first time, I couldn't remember. I was like, oh, damn, is this is Johnny just dead now? Like, he's lived a shit life, and now he's dead. Turns out he's not actually dead at this point, even though a building collapsed onto him. But it's not too much better, though. No, that's a very good point. So the ambulance has come. Dally, who was also in there, he basically just seemed to have gotten some bruises and burns. Like, not too bad. Johnny got a broken back and freaking third degree burns all across his body. And so we spend the rest of the movie, whenever we see Ralph Macchio, this horribly gruesome burn makeup on him, just horribly uncomfortable looking. And he has to be upside down. Yeah, they have him in this contraption that it's almost like Perseus with Medusa. He's always talking into a mirror. Right. So that he can see other people. Cause he's, yeah, he's like upside down. It, is unusual i don't know if they really do this well it's really humiliating and like he's so disfigured and he just 
We learn he broke his back, and so he's paralyzed from the waist down. He's just, he's in bad shape. But also, remember, at this point, the murder happened. And so, like, they get pulled in by the ambulance. So now, what's going to happen, the fact that they, that Johnny straight up killed a Soch. But the newspaper gets wind of the fact that this was a kind of heroic thing that they did. And the courts end up dropping Pony Boy's charges and only charging Johnny with manslaughter, which is still not good. Like, I don't know how long you go into jail for that, but considering he straight up stabbed a dude, I guess it could be worse. Spoiler, it's not going to end up mattering all that much, but there is a little more to it in the extended cut and in the book. We don't know right away that Johnny's charge is dismissed. There's actually like a whole hearing thing before it gets dismissed. And we see that hearing in the the extended edition. It's got this interesting thing where it keeps zooming in on a clock ticking. And it's like this time. I think Coppola was trying to do something symbolic with like one's time and how do we measure time and how are we so thoughtless with the time of children throwing it away or something like that. I don't know. But anyways, now they're back in town. And what does one do? Brian, I ask you this. If you and some friends got into a fight with some other friends, how would you solve that fight? What's the natural resolution? I assume it would be a rumble. Is that what you would do? A rumble? That that You got to plan the rumble. I mean, so... Have you seen any version of West Side Story? Uh, a long time ago, I saw the movie. Okay. So there was just a new West Side Story, and I just recently saw that all of West Side Story is building to a rumble. That, like, at the start, the two gangs decide they're going to rumble, and then... Well, one thing is the whole story takes place over just two days. And so it's, like, planning for the rumble, and then the rumble happens, and then it's, like, the, the wee hours of the night the fallout of the rumble. Uh, So I was actually expecting this to go a lot worse in this movie than it did because a lot goes down in the West Side Story rumble, even though people are ballet dancing around each other. (laughs) Uh, But actually nobody dies in this rumble here. So it's like a much smaller body count than West Side Story. A couple other rumble thoughts. So yeah, this is a a rumble between the Soches and the Greasers, I guess to reach climax on their, their, their beef that has already had at least one die and soon to be more than one. Yeah, it'll be a a battle to settle the feud, settle the beef. I have a rumble story as well. It's a a favorite family story of mine. So my mom used to be a youth minister at a church, and so she would organize youth events. And one time she got a call from a parent that – some of the kids were planning at a social event that my mom was organizing. We're planning to stage a rumble in the parking lot. We're talking like seventh and eighth graders here. And I always thought that that was the funniest thing in the world because like, what are we like kids from the outsiders who would have a rumble in like 1993, uh, rich suburbs military contractors in northern virginia so this was like once she was already your mom this isn't something she was doing as a teenager or something no no so this is for an event she was organizing but the funny part of it is that i mean the reason that this specific event is often recalled is 
she was stressed out about it and she was pregnant with my younger brother patrick and she went into labor that night perhaps at least because of the rumble but she ended up canceling the event but the stress of caused by the rumble perhaps led to the birthing of my younger brother patrick so <laughs> there you go i like that but yeah so they're planning this rumble and they go to this rumble dally gets out of the hospital so he he's in the hospital at first but he's not in too bad a shape his nurse is actually played by susan hinton se hinton but at this point she couldn't have been that old she's like in her probably late 30s or early 40s despite the fact that she had a bestseller novel come out a decade and a half earlier but they they have this rumble and so all the greasers gather together they go out to this field oh cherry appears at one point and says it'll be like you guys do it just skin to skin or something like that like adding up the first of all we we know it's just gonna the idea is that it's gonna be just people punching each other i didn't like what is the point of just going out there and punching each other like i don't see how that resolves a beef I didn't get this. Well, that's the other thing is in, in West Side Story, they're like, no rough stuff. We're not going to have, it's like, we can have chains, but we can't have knives. Well, if we have knives, you know, maybe we can have knives, but no guns. And it's like, you just know that everybody's going to come ready to escalate. Yeah. But that is another thing that didn't happen here. No, they're just, they, everybody stuck to the terms. They just walked out into the field and punched each other. And I, I thought it was kind of funny that the Soches roll up literally in their letterman jackets and like their golf shoes like <laughs> these are not like football jocks these are like crew coxswains like i don't know they just they don't look ready to win this fight and so i was not surprised when they don't right yeah so the fight is shot and i think this has become a cliche maybe it was already a cliche i don't know but when things are about to reach their violent climax, a storm comes, a literal storm. And so it's raining as they're fighting. But I think the rain actually serves a pretty important purpose because it like gets all foggy and muddy as everybody's punching each other. And it starts to become harder and harder to tell people apart. It's like it's just a blur of people. Another important theme of this story is that the greasers have shit lives, but... The Soshas also have shit lives. Everybody thinks they have their own shit lives and we're all kind of alike. And so I really feel like this rumble, it's it's shot almost impressionistically. It's like you get a glimpse of Tom Cruise punching some muddy dude and then some other muddy dude punch another, some other muddy dude. And it, it really is like an apotheosis here. It's like, it reminded me of the drag race in American Graffiti where it like, again, it's capturing kind of these more base things at play than just some dickwads slapping at each other on a muddy field in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is a little cheesy, though. It's definitely a little cheesy. I was thinking of the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings. Okay. Because it's raining during that one. I can see that. But you're right. So you, you mentioned this. The, the Greasers do end up winning the Rumble. I, it's not clear to me how they won it. I guess they just punch better. I guess that's how it goes. And the Soches run off and then the they're cheering. Yeah. You don't want to get blood on your college sweater, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> it's not worth it. This is where the Tom Cruise tooth chip thing happens. 
And so Dally and Ponyboy, they're like, yeah, we got to go tell Johnny. We won. Somebody said, let's do it for Johnny, which I think is a line that you see quoted every now and then. They said that before the, the rumble, but they they go to tell Johnny, hey, we won the rumble and we run it in your honor. And he's like, no, don't fight for me. He says, stay gold, pony boy, stay gold. And then he dies. Just like that, that's it. And I was thinking, a line I think of a lot is in our Titanic episode, how he said, if Rose had died at the end of Titanic, it's it's unclear, it's ambiguous. But if your reading is that she died, how bold was it that she just died then? Or also in uh, Elephant Man, where he said, well, guess I'll die now. Both of those are running through my head as Johnny died here. <laughs> just like right after somebody won a rumble in his honor. And he's like, basically announced that he's about to die and then he dies. So I don't know. <laughs> Made me laugh. Ralph Macchio, though, was killing it, though, like in this horrible back brace hospital bed, just uttering these lines. If if I had seen this movie in 1983, I would have thought this guy's going to go on to win like three best actor awards. Uh, I'm a little surprised. He's never been as good in what I've, I mean, in My Cousin Vinny or Karate Kid. Never better. I guess those are the two other things I saw him in. Yeah, true. But in a way, this is kind of the anti My Cousin Vinny because Ralph Macchio actually did kill a guy. <laughs> And then he still needs, like, his friends to get him out of it. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. To rumble for him. But I guess they don't succeed. So in the, in that, it is, again, an opposite. Because uh, he do, he doesn't make it out of this one all right. Would have been funny with a, a rumble in My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> Imagining uh, Joe Pesci rumbling with... What's the name of the, the actor who plays the judge? Fred Gwynn. Yeah. As... <laughs> Hurt he of the monsters, yeah. just wrestling in the mud. There is a lot of mud, though, in My Cousin Vinny. So mm, that's true. There is a similarity, perhaps. But at this, when when Johnny dies, Dally just snaps. So it's funny, I 100% agree in the movie. The obvious, like, homoerotic undertones are between Johnny and Ponyboy. In the book... It's a little more like Dally has an intense fondness for Johnny, which makes his snap here make a little bit more sense. And in fact, if you ever Google the outsider's gay and make sure that you have safe, safe search turned on, what you'll find is an article about Essie Hinton kind of angry tweeting someone who during like a ask me anything Twitter conversation said, Hey, was Dally in love with Johnny? Because it kind of seemed that way. And S.E. Hinton getting very defensive about it and saying no, that he wasn't. So that's the one that gets played up a little bit more in the book. But you don't get quite as much of that in the movie. It's definitely Ponyboy and Johnny who have that charge in the film. But it, it would make what happens a little make a little bit more sense. When Dally snaps, he, he has this empty handgun. We know it's empty. Because he does this thing where he like fires it at a guy, except nothing comes out. And he like robs a store. And when the cops pursue him, he points the gun at the cops. And then the cops shoot him and he dies. And I've heard this called suicide by cop before. Right. 
where basically you act like you're going to do something violent so that a cop will kill you. But indeed, we have our second death over the course of like an hour, I guess, if even, where Dally, Dallas Matt Dillon dies shortly after Johnny. And so thus we have our tragic ending to The Outsiders. In the theatrical cut, it just ends. So we do get the letter, right? Yeah. So the theatrical cut ends with this letter that Johnny wrote, and he tucked into a copy of Gone with the Wind, which was, again, the book that they read at the church about. Again, it kind of explains, hey, this poem is kind of like us. And I don't know. I can't remember exactly what else is in there. Well, one of the things that they bond over that you kind of touched on uh, Johnny and pony boy is well with, with you around, I can appreciate sunsets or something like that. And it's like, you know, with other people, I don't talk about the sunsets. So in the note, uh, Ralph Macchio's narration says something like, it's good that you appreciate sunsets, pony boy. You got to still keep appreciating sunsets. It's like, don't, don't let, me getting smashed in a fiery barn lets you lose that appreciation for the world around you, which, you know, I, I, it's like you're saying, it's strengthening the theme of stay gold pony boy. Right. Which by the way, prior to seeing this movie, the only thing I knew about the outsiders was that line stay gold pony boy. And I, I literally thought it was just a thing that you say when you walk out of a room. <laughs> like that meme that cycles endlessly on Instagram of stay fresh cheese bags. Stay gold, pony boy. Adios, amigos. See you later, alligator. Right. Yeah. But there's a little more to it than that. No, that's good. That makes me think of something that I'm not sure I connected previously, which is that one of the things that pony boy f thinks about when he thinks about Cherry in the novel is that she was the one of the only people that he thought about who might have liked sunsets. It's like, she seemed like someone who would like sunsets. So I think this motif of sunsets is a pretty important one for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Now, this is where the theatrical cut ends, but the book and the extended cut have a couple more scenes. We get the hearing where he, he gets off the hook and then he has an exchange with his English teacher who tells him, you got to write an essay. And then he recreates the beginning. There's also a whole soda pop breakdown that we don't get in the theatrical cut. And there's a thing where soda pop is the only one who has a steady girlfriend, this girl named Sandy. And she runs off to, to her grandmother's in the book and I remember in seventh grade, it was a big deal when our teacher revealed to us that reading between the lines, what Essie Hinton was saying was she got pregnant and that's why she got sent off to her grandmother's. And then at the end of the book, he gets a letter from Sandy and he breaks down and Derry says, well, you know, Sandy, it wasn't his pony boy. And without ever explicitly saying what's going on we are supposed to know that oh she was messing around with soda pop and he was kind of like this symbol of what could go right of of what how love could be real except for sandy it wasn't even as real as we thought and that's all 
cut from the theatrical version, but a little bit of is there in the extended cut and it's also very much there in the novel. So that's kind of something else that's missing. But anyways, that's how, depending on which version you're watching, that's how The Outsiders from 1983, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, ends. So, Brian, The Outsiders, tell me some good things or some not so good things. All right. Well, it's definitely got some strong visuals and all the elements together, the music and the wardrobe, it evokes like a moment in time and it really lets you linger in it, even though it's not a very long movie. Like the way that time kind of stops when they're at the barn, it really sits with you for a while. Yeah, I... It, strong sense of time and place and it has you thinking about the themes of the the fleeting nature of beauty so overall it's gonna do all right when it comes to is it good for me i know we're not quite there yet but i do have some uh, some not so good things to to give lip service to first uh but what about you dan yeah as far as what you liked well i really like the ensemble cast it's got names brian and the names are doing good work. Really, everyone who appears is pretty is doing pretty good work. I don't really have any complaints with the cast. I especially like Ralph Macchio, as mentioned. I think C. Thomas Howell does good stuff as Pony Boy in the lead. One thing I don't know, I don't think I mentioned already, he starred in a movie called Secret Admirer, which I think came out a couple years after this that I really, really did not like. One of the lower-rated movies I have on my Letterboxd account, I have it as one star out of five. Not quite at the half star that I gave AWOG, but certainly not not doing too well. And I actually think I that movie pissed me off more than Amazing World of Ghosts pissed me off because I had a good time watching Amazing World of Ghosts, even if I thought it was pretty pointless. But point being that... I'm not sure what happened to C. Thomas Howell, except that he ended up in in, uh, maybe some not-so-good movies down the line. Yeah, I like the cast. I almost wish we had more of the side characters of Emilio Estevez and Tom Cruise and Rob Lowe and Patrick Swayze and all them. Because there's a lot of really talented and charming people here. I think the movie is heightened by the fact that it's all of these crazy famous and successful actors as 18 and 19 and 20 year olds here. But yeah, I agree that the moments that work are really powerful and just a lot of deep current coming of age shit going on, the visuals and the script and the acting just, just that intimacy between the boys, the greasers, they're, they're soft for each other. You know, they act tough, but they're not ashamed to be open about it. And when they let down their guard, it's pretty powerful stuff. And it's, it is all a bit over the top on the melodrama, but I like it when it works. So I'm, I think I'm with you on the, the good stuff. But let's hear some of your not so good things. Mainly the sudden introduction of this group of kids that suddenly inexplicably at the abandoned building and it's going to be so titanically important to everything that comes next. It just is like, 
it's almost like the opposite of a deus ex machina. It's like, it's not the solution to a conflict that comes out of nowhere. It's the conflict itself. Right. It's like a Satan ex machina. Yeah. Uh, other than that, there's not much. Yeah. So that's going to drag me down a little bit when it comes to the, the rating. But uh, I don't know. That That's really the main thing for me. What about you? That bothered me some. It didn't bother me quite as much because I can still see it working on a symbolic level. I'll I'll give it to you though. It's it doesn't stand up to to intensive scrutiny. I think they never quite figured out the music, and I also think neither the theatrical cut nor the extended cut quite nails the pacing and the amount of detail. Like the extended cut has more scenes, but it repeats some exposition and some beats. But the original theatrical cut is missing some really important stuff and we don't get enough of the ensemble cast and so i can't even tell you which of the two i prefer i don't know which one i would watch again but i felt like it never quite got there to become a masterpiece but it's still it's still doing a lot of good stuff that i i really liked but i like the production i like the over the toppedness of everything i just like it when we can see the a coming of age story of the the kids being real with each other and figuring out stuff and I don't know it it affected me I liked it maybe not quite as much as when I was twelve and read it in seventh grade but it's still a story that if sad moments and powerful moments and all that that's what I got Brian shall we move to our signature section Let's so is it good It's our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, it's a 1 out of 8, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, an 8 out of 8. So Brian, is The Outsiders from 1983 good? All right, so I went back and forth a bit. I've noticed that last few weeks, it's felt like I've given kind of a blah rating of 5 out of 8 good several times uh, in the last handful. And so maybe partially because I want to shake that average up. I'm landing at a six, a very good for this one. I think it's got a lot going for it. Um, that's what I gave to Dead Poets Society. And for whatever reason, as far as like a teenage-focused period film with some maudlin qualities, that feels like the right home for this one to me. What about you? Was this a good one? I'm glad that you liked it, and uh, I liked it too. I liked it quite a bit. I am right on the fence between a 6 and a 7. A very good and an exceptionally good. I think Francis Ford Coppola brings out some of the best material in the novel with an amazing cast, some brilliant visuals, great setting, just great iconography in this rural America, and... You know, you got some of the church stuff. You got these kids figuring it out. You got a rumble where everybody's identity blurs together. I don't know. I liked it a lot. I, I really liked it. But I think the fact that it never quite figured out what to do with its soundtrack, even in the corrected cuts, and there's just no one version of it that feels definitive, makes it feel like it left stuff on the table a little bit. Because I still really love it. 
it's definitely not up to American graffiti territory for me, but it's also not more than a tier below that. I think it's a, an amazing, compelling, moving story that brings in a great poem, lots of great lines and performances. I'm going to land on a high, very good six. So I'm going to match you, but I'm going to be overall a little bit more enthusiastic than you were on the the affection I feel towards it. So despite our, our same ratings. Cool. So I'm curious, I'm curious, what music would you have selected? I don't know. It's It's hard to say. So the theatrical edition had the orchestral score. The extended edition, the, the complete novel edition had like this surf rock piped in and a couple of rock songs. I feel like a little bit less music overall would have been okay. And I feel like the surf rock is closer, but it's not quite there. I would have done like maybe some more Elvis tracks, some like scratchy sounding blues. But then again, maybe in my head, this is the 50s and not the 60s. And that's not what people were listening to in the 60s. So I don't know. That's a good question. I guess what I'm saying is it just it ultimately didn't sound quite right, even if I don't have the solution. That's certainly a symptom I noticed. So I don't know. But I'm going to think on that. That's a good question. You know, don't don't necessarily claim a problem if you don't have a proposed solution. There we go. That's uh, The Outsiders, 1983. And we continue to go yam next week, Brian. Week four of Young Adult Month. So what do you have for us? What are we going to be watching and discussing next time on The Goods Film Podcast, Young Adult Month? Well, in our next chapter of yam... I am going to select one of those films that you name-dropped earlier as far as being important in the history of the genre. It's one I've never seen before. I was kind of looking for one that had like a, a, a Brian Pick flavor. Uh, didn't quite get there, but this is one I've been curious about. It's The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Some motivating factors behind my choice. It has Emma Watson in it which means we can round out the trifecta of Emma's. We had Emma Stone in La La Land, Emma Roberts in It's Kind of a Funny Story, and now we're going to get the chance to complete the set. And the, the other factor is that, you know, I feel like sometimes in my life I've been a wallflower, and I don't know what the perks are, so I want to find out. <laughs> what are those perks? Yeah. No, this will be good. I I saw this once, and... When we talked about Paper Towns, we talked a little bit about how it was hard for me to take the film at face value because I was intimately familiar with the source material. And I had some of that on the movie adaptation. And so now that I'm much more detached from that source material, I'm looking forward to watching it again. So, yeah, uh, we can talk more about that next week. But uh, this will be an interesting pick. Thank you. Thank you for picking it, Brian. Oh, yes, it's. Always fun discussing a movie with you, Dan. I hope you join us next time, listeners, here on The Goods. Yeah, stay gold, listeners, and we'll talk to you next week on The Goods. The Goods.